You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 26th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is our fourth episode in our mini-series on climate science. So it may seem a little odd that we're only now getting into the science of the carbon cycle and how it relates to warming, because how carbon is released into the atmosphere, how nature captures and recycles it, and how our activities are overwhelming the capacity of the natural carbon storage cycle is the core of the global warming phenomenon. But teaching about climate science isn't easy. Experts like Dan Kahan have shown that one's political orientation can distort our reasoning, and no amount of factual information can overcome that. Daniel Kahneman has shown that the things that we think we know intrinsically, like the things our tribes believe, can lead us astray, and that overcoming that part of our minds requires an intentional focus and a lot of mental energy. Scientific facts can arouse all sorts of resistance if those facts are at odds with our institutions, or our tribal beliefs, or even, by extension, our identities. For this show, I elected to follow the thread of news headlines and politics into the subject because in these ever-so-political days, that seemed like an accessible approach to the core science. But there are other ways, including just persisting with teaching the fundamental facts of climate science and working through the data to come to some useful and policy-relevant conclusions. But even doing that requires a good deal of personal fortitude and internal balance. Teaching about climate science in the era of the Trump administration is certainly no easy task. Our guest today is an expert in teaching climate science and knows a thing or two about how people learn and what the effective teaching methods are. Dr. Sarah Harris is a 2015 3M National Teaching Fellow and Professor of Teaching in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She has a PhD in oceanography from Oregon State University and a research background in paleo-oceanography and paleoclimate. She is the co-author of a 2014 book titled Understanding Climate Change, Science, Policy, and Practice, and she offers a self-paced free online course called Climate Change, the Science. Her current research explores how people learn climate science, and she has a very elegant way of presenting the science of the carbon cycle. Then in the news segment of the show, we'll have a look at an exciting new transmission line project for Norway, how Norwegian companies are switching to electric propulsion for ferries, an encouraging report on global coal usage, more news about coal in India, and how investment houses are rebalancing their portfolios in light of new information about coal. But first, our conversation with Sarah Harris. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sarah, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. This is our fourth episode on climate science, but actually we haven't really talked that much yet about the carbon cycle and the pathways that greenhouse gas emissions take into the atmosphere. Now, this is a scientifically literate audience, so I don't think we need to cover the very basic concepts. But why don't we just start with a refresher? How exactly does the carbon cycle work and produce warming? 
Well, really, the warming part is really about how much carbon is in the atmosphere acting as greenhouse gases. So the two main ones there are carbon dioxide, which has C in it, CO2, and methane, CH4. Both of those have carbon in them. In terms of the carbon cycle, carbon is exchanging all around in the Earth system. It's in rocks, and it's in the ocean, and it's in the atmosphere, and it's in plants, and us, and all sorts of forms. But what matters for warming is the greenhouse effect. And so it matters how much of that carbon happens to be in the atmosphere at any particular time. Right now, we've got something like about 850 billion tons of carbon in the atmosphere. That's a really small amount compared to the carbon that's on the planet. We've got something like 40,000 billion tons in the oceans and maybe something like 50 million billion tons in rocks. But again, it's the atmospheric carbon that really matters. As I think your listeners probably know, if we didn't have an atmosphere at all, or if the atmosphere only contained the major constituents like nitrogen and oxygen, then Earth would be a lot colder. It'd be pretty much frozen. But those greenhouse gases that have carbon in the atmosphere are keeping us warmer than we otherwise might be. So it's the atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases like CO2 and CH4 that are warming the planet. And how they do that is basically Earth gives off infrared energy. And just like you and I, we all give off infrared energy. The chair I'm sitting in is giving off energy. Everything that has a temperature above absolute zero is giving off energy, and it's dependent on its temperature. Earth happens to give off a range of wavelengths of energy that's in the infrared. Just like the sun, which is a lot hotter than the Earth, gives off wavelength ranges that are in the visible, which most people know about. So the Earth is sitting here giving off infrared radiation, and there are gases in the atmosphere that have molecular structures such that they can absorb those wavelengths of radiation and then re-emit them. And it takes a particular kind of molecular structure to do that, and CO2 and CH4 and water vapor are three of the big ones that, that are able to do that. So what happens is a photon comes off the Earth's surface, it gets absorbed, if it's the right wavelength, it gets absorbed by a greenhouse gas. That greenhouse gas then re-emits it, and it re-emits that photon in some random direction, because greenhouse gases don't have a sense of direction. And so that photon could go upward, it could go downward, it could go sideways. It very likely would go and get absorbed by another greenhouse gas, and then get re-emitted in another random direction. And eventually, these photons, some of them are going to make their way back down to the Earth's surface and get reabsorbed. So that's an addition of energy getting to the surface and therefore causing warming. Or they're going to eventually make their way out to space. All right, so we've got energy coming in from the sun. We've got energy leaving from space. If those two things balance out, which over time they generally do, then we've got an equilibrium temperature happening. The greenhouse effect is essentially keeping some of that energy in the Earth system for longer, and so we end up with a warmer planet than we, we otherwise would have. So it's really the, the characteristics of particular gases in the atmosphere that can absorb and re-emit radiation that the Earth's surface happens to give off. So maybe we should talk a little bit about the carbon cycle. Okay. So how does exactly carbon get cycled around? Lots of different ways. So the basic carbon cycle that involves the atmosphere in the short term is exchanged with the biosphere. So photosynthesis, plants take up CO2 out of the atmosphere when they're growing. 
and then when they die, they decay and they release that CO2 back to the atmosphere. So plants and respiration by plants and animals, those are two big ways in which CO2 comes and goes from the atmosphere. And that happens in a big way on an annual cycle. There's also gas exchange with the ocean. That's another short-term exchange that matters quite a lot for us. So there's constantly bombardment of CO2 molecules bouncing around in the atmosphere, hitting the surface of the ocean. And if the partial pressure of CO2 on one side of that boundary is higher than on the other side of that boundary, then we'll get a flux of CO2 molecules across it. In some places on Earth, that flux is from the ocean into the atmosphere. And then in some places, it's from the atmosphere into the ocean depends on the conditions in that particular location. But on average, with natural processes, those would balance over time. So, you know, we've got something like 90 gigatons of carbon exchanging between the atmosphere and ocean every year. And we've got something like 120 gigatons of carbon exchanging with the plants and the soils and the atmosphere every year. So there's these vast exchanges going on. Some bits of carbon get buried for example, they might get buried in the ocean sediments on the bottom of the ocean. Those will eventually make their way into rocks. And that's really where the vast storage of carbon is, is in rocks. And that carbon comes out of rocks and goes into rocks very slowly, but that's where the major reservoir is. Fossil fuels are, of course, one particular kind of special reservoir, which really just means that the carbon has gotten concentrated enough that humans can economically extract it from the rocks. So I've heard quite a range of estimates about how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere. I've heard as little as five years to as many as thousands of years. I've heard that methane is 20 times more potent than CO2 in warming the planet. And I've heard that it's 100 times more potent. And then there are the various claims made about the other greenhouse gases. And frankly, it's all gotten a bit blurry in my head. So can you help straighten me out? Like, what is the meaning of these numbers anyway? And are there certain numbers that we should be carrying around in our minds as a way of thinking about this? Yeah, there are two basic questions there. One has to do with how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere, which is one question. And then there's this other one, which you mentioned about methane being more potent than CO2. So this is called global warming potential of different gases. So the range of estimates for how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere, I think, comes from two different ways of thinking about it. So I was just talking about how much carbon exchanges with the ocean every year and how much exchanges with the plants and soils every year. So total, every year going out of the atmosphere, we have something on the order of 200 billion tons of carbon going out of the atmosphere into the ocean and plants. And we've got also 200 coming back out into the atmosphere. And total, our sort of stock of carbon in the atmosphere is about 850 billion tons. So got 850 billion tons, 200 of that is getting exchanged every year. So that's why someone might come up with a number like four to five years is the average sort of residence time of a molecule of CO2 in the atmosphere. But that's not really very useful or very important because it's not like we could just then shut off one of those valves. For example, just let's just keep the valve that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere into the ocean, but not let any back out. That's not going to work. So even though individual molecules are exchanging, the total stock of carbon in the atmosphere is what really matters. And so to draw that down takes a much longer time 
than these quick annual kinds of exchanges. So, you know, we've been putting about 10 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere through human activities every year. And so that's 10 billion on top of what is getting exchanged naturally. And on average, about half of that, about 5 billion of the excess carbon we're emitting gets naturally taken up by the oceans and by plants and soils. So they're doing us a huge favor by essentially taking out about 50% of what we put in every year. But that extra 50% is staying in the atmosphere. So let's just say at some time in the future, we are going to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere. At that point, our emissions will go to zero. We'll have some concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere that's higher than today. The real question is, how long does it take to draw that down? And that is a longer timescale process. So initially, it's going to go into the ocean, right, contributing to ocean acidification, which is already happening on a large scale, a measurable scale, and causing problems for marine organisms. The really long scale drawdown is going to take up to hundreds of thousands of years. And that drawdown actually has to happen through slow rock weathering processes. So geologic kind of timescales is what we're talking about. And we, we know those timescales mostly by looking at records from the past. One pretty famous example is a record from 55 million years ago at the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. And this was an event in which a lot of carbon got released to the atmosphere fairly quickly. And fairly quickly is probably on the order of several thousand years. So actually probably slower than what we're doing now. And we can look at what the geologic record says about that. And we see this perturbation, this spike increase. And then we see how long it takes to go back to something that might look like background. And that took, you know, between 100,000 and 200,000 years. So I think in terms of timescales, yes, someone could say, well, the residence time of an average CO2 molecule or carbon atom in the atmosphere is four or five years, but that's not very meaningful. What's really meaningful is the timescale that it's going to take to draw down atmospheric CO2 from the peak that we're going to eventually reach. That was the first part of the question. The second part of your question has to do with global warming potential. When people say things like methane is 20 times more potent than CO2, and these are really squirrely numbers, I think they're hard to get your head around. And it really depends on a few different things that are hard to understand. One thing it depends on is the initial concentration of the greenhouse gas. And concentrations of these greenhouse gases are changing over time. So this is why global warming potential estimates are actually changing over time. One of the reasons. Another thing that matters is how good each gas is at absorbing and emitting infrared radiation. So is it absorbing wavelengths that are right smack at the peak of what the Earth emits, or are they off in the tails and not so important? And another thing that matters is what happens to each gas over time. Really, these global warming potentials and these comparisons, what we're trying to say is if we emit, for example, a ton of methane into the atmosphere, and we look at how much that changes the greenhouse effect over, say, a 20-year time horizon or a 100-year time horizon. How does that greenhouse effect from that ton of methane compare to a situation in which we emit a ton of CO2 instead? So CO2 is the comparator gas. So it always has a global warming potential of one, because if you compare it to itself, then it's one. Right. So the thing about greenhouse gases that a big part of this is that 
the higher the initial concentration of the greenhouse gas, the less bang for your buck you're going to get. So the increase in the greenhouse effect doesn't go up linearly with every molecule added, but it goes up with every doubling. So if we increase the CO2 concentration from, say, 100 to 200 parts per million, right, we're adding 100 parts per million, that gets us an extra about 4 watts per meter squared, which are the energy units we use in climate science, for that doubling. To get another 4 watts per meter squared, we actually have to go all the way up to 400, right? So we have to double again. We have to add twice as much the next time to get the same warming. So the higher you go, the less warming you get for each additional molecule. And the analogy that I sometimes use in my class is, is like baseball outfielders, right? So typically you have three and you can catch some number of fly balls because those folks can cover the area in some way, right, with the three of them. If you add a fourth, you're probably going to do quite a bit better, right? You added one from three to four, and you, you're really probably going to catch more fly balls. But say you had a hundred of them, and then you added one more outfielder, like it's really not going to make much of a difference, right. right? So it's the same kind of thing with greenhouse gases. So right now, adding a molecule of CO2, given the current CO2 concentration, is just less effective than adding a molecule of methane. So there's that, because they're starting at different initial concentrations. CO2 has an absorption band that's quite nicely positioned close to the middle of the range of wavelengths that the Earth gives off. And, and methane has a pretty good position as well, and it's just less saturated right now. The other thing that really matters is what happens to the gas over time, right? So methane isn't particularly stable in the atmosphere, so after about a decade or so, it will actually oxidize and become CO2, right? So it's got a decade of being methane, and then it's got a much longer lifetime being CO2. So all of these things have to get combined and estimates come out like, you know, methane is 20 times more potent than CO2. But it also, again, it depends on that time horizon, right? The shorter the time horizon, the more important methane is going to be. The longer the time horizon, the less important methane is going to be. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. Subscribers also enjoy other features, like our new transcript control, which allows you to search or click in the text or the audio player to jump to that point in the audio and the transcript. Subscribers also have access to our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. In the future, we hope to offer even more value to our subscribers. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month just as a way of saying thanks. And if you're an educator thinking that you'd like to make the Energy Transition Show available to your students, just drop an email to me, chris at energytransitionshow.com, and we'll get you set up. Several university classes have already taken advantage of our unbeatable educational discount, and we'd love to make the show available to more smart young students interested in energy transition and climate change. 
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The Nordlink Interconnector Project, the first transmission interconnection between Germany and Norway across the North Sea, will go ahead with the announcement that the European Investment Bank will loan Norwegian operator Statnet 300 million euro for the completion of the 1.4 gigawatt line. Back in April, the EIB also agreed to provide Tenet, a transmission system operator on the German side, with a separate 350 million euro loan for the same project. The Nordlink is a bipolar, high-voltage, direct-current HVDC link, 624 kilometers or 388 miles long, with an estimated total cost of about 1.2 billion euro. The Nordlink is considered a project of common interest in the priority corridor of the North Sea's offshore grid project that we discussed in episode 34, and will enable Germany to import low-cost hydropower from Norway and wind power from Denmark. Item 2. Norway continues to push the leading edge in electric vessels. Last October, Plan B Energy Storage, or PBES, a Norwegian maker of battery storage technology... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.